Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just like life, sports is often defined by complete changes in a mere instant. That is true for Fortuna High School's Bailey Foley, a tough-as-nails defender who stepped off the football field one day complaining of a cramp, but minutes later was being rushed to a hospital. This didn't just alter the life of Bailey, but everyone around him, his family, his team, his town, and especially his coach. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Tim Kuhn as we talk about how one play and one player can bring an entire town not just to their knees, but on their feet as well. Now we present The Fearless Bailey Foley by Tim Kuhn. The Fearless Bailey Foley. The coach doesn't want to think about how many times he's watched the game. He knows it's an unhealthy number, a troubling number, maybe even a shocking one. But he takes the laser pointer and sits down, preparing to attack it with forensic intensity one more time. He's a detective, unable to shake the cold case that haunts him. He pulls down the screen at the front of his classroom and cues up the kickoff. Hopefully he might see something he missed the first fifty or sixty or one hundred times. He's immediately taken back to August twenty-fifth, two thousand seventeen. The knot in his stomach. The helplessness. The grim knowledge of how many lives would change before it's over. He can stop the film before every play and describe it. He'll tell you what the alignment is, what play is called, how it turned out. Now what I want you to look out for here is, he'll begin. We're sitting in his classroom at Fortuna High School, 270 miles north of San Francisco, watching a game that took place at Cardinal Newman High School in Santa Rosa, the first game of Mike Benbow's 10th season as Fortuna's head coach. The objective, as always, is to follow one player, Senior Bailey Foley, number 20, a five foot 180-pound defensive end and part-time running back, with a reputation for throwing his body around like it didn't belong to him. God, he was a tough-ass kid, says his teammate and best friend Ethan Higgins. Best word is fearless. Benbow tried Bailey all over the field before settling on weak side end, where he was all-county as a junior the year before. I just put him out there to blow things up. Benbow says. He wasn't much for assignment football, but he could destroy plays. Benbow, 48, is a beefy, affable guy who teaches U.S. history and AP U.S. government in cargo shorts, a t-shirt, and either a John Deere cap or a Harvard visor. His daughter Haley will be a freshman there in the fall. It's the last day of finals. Graduation is tomorrow, and he's repeatedly interrupted by students asking him to sign their yearbooks. There are team photos on the wall and a sticker that reads, Hit or Be Hit, attached to the lectern at the front of the room. Before he cues up the game, he runs through his interactions with Bailey from that day. There were no signs of confusion on the three-and-a-half-hour drive from Fortuna to Santa Rosa, he says. Nothing alarming during warm-ups, no fuzzy interactions during the game. He's been coaching long enough to see the signs. A kid wanders or looks lost in the huddle or stands off to the side trying to collect his bearings. Benbow starts the game, and it plays uneventfully before us. There are plays when Bailey gets hit, and plays when he does the hitting, but he never drifts on the outskirts of the huddle or needs help getting off the field. Benbow stops the film on one play early in the fourth quarter. Bailey chases a play across the field from the far hash to the sideline and pulls up as the runner heads out of bounds. See? 
Benbow asks, playing it one more time. To this point, he's doing all the right things. He's right. The game, and Bailey's role in it, is stunningly ordinary. A few plays later, Benbow stops the film again. Cardinal Newman scored the final touchdown of a lopsided win, and as the team lines up for the kickoff, he says, Okay, so Bailey's going to return this kick. Watch and tell me what you see. It's a short kick to the right side of Fortuna's return team. Foley catches it on a bounce and is almost immediately at full speed. He runs hard and straight. Nothing in his manner suggests even the slightest interest in elusiveness until he's hit at the waist and brought down 25 yards downfield. Benbow runs it back twice more, going frame by frame on the tackle. Is that it? he asks. I'm sitting here over and over trying to figure out exactly what could have happened, and that kickoff return is the one thing. He must have gotten hit, but then you look at it and he runs, he turns, he's tackled. Where is it? It's not there. The film doesn't show what comes next. Only a few plays later, Foley jogged off the field, mumbled something about cramps, and took off his helmet. He flopped down on the grass and told Higgins, I feel like someone's squishing down on my head. Higgins ran to Benbow and said, Coach, something's wrong with Bailey. By the time they reached him, Foley was lying near the 25-yard line. First he vomited over and over, and then the seizures began. The whole thing, from taking off his helmet to beginning to seize, took 15 seconds. The game was called with less than four minutes remaining. The final image on the screen that hangs in the classroom is a circle of men surrounding a boy on the ground. There's no sound, but the panic is obvious. The screen goes dark. The image of the boy on the ground and the men surrounding him burns into the darkness. Part of coaching is finding answers. Pick up the blitz and a receiver runs free. Block the linebacker and a hole opens. Stay home on a reverse and the play fails. Find a problem and fix it. Repetition is the universal solvent, and so Benbow watches again and again, seeking a resolution, something that will save someone else from this torment. Everybody wanted to find that one thing and say, there it is, and now we know, Benbow says, his voice rising, his right fist punching the air like a judge's gavel. He gets up from his desk and walks around the front of the room, his eyes never leaving the screen. He's quiet for what feels like forever. Finally, he looks down and says, I guess that would have been easier, but I don't know. Would it? Bailey Foley could bench press 215, more than 30 pounds over his weight, and his wiry body was toughened by riding motorcycles and dirt bikes in the coastal mountains and loamy bed of the Eel River. He was the starting infielder on the varsity baseball team, who liked to spend weekends fishing for Lingcod 20 miles away along the Pacific's lost coast or for Steelhead in the river down the street. He was the kind of kid who was typical of Fortuna, the friendly city, population 12,191, but rare most other places, the kind who lived outside. The air in Humboldt County is like damp wool, the climate and topography ideal for growing redwoods, marijuana, and tough kids. On the football field, Bailey had a reputation among his teammates and opponents as an eager and sometimes savage hitter. I came here from the city, says Higgins, who moved to Fortuna from the Phoenix area after his freshman year. We didn't have kids like that in the city. Rough, tough kid that will deal with you if you start something. Higgins hesitates, says he doesn't want to get his friend in trouble, but there were times when he was out with Bailey when someone decided to cross him, or worse, one of his friends. 
The fights were quick and definitive. Higgins says, I'd be thinking, I'm glad you're my best friend because right now, that other guy wishes he was. School was a problem. We always had to worry about him, Benbow says. Is he going to be with us or not? When we had him, he was great. The issue was getting him there. The spring of Foley's junior year, Benbow dogged him to get his grades up so he could be eligible as a senior in the fall. This was a constant fight, and Bailey grew to believe Benbow had it out for him. I finally just left him alone, Benbow says. I told him it was up to him. As Benbow's voice trailed off, Higgins gained volume. An honors student on his way to the University of Arizona, Higgins encouraged his friend to take the ten summer credits he needed to regain his eligibility. Our team is going to be good, but it'll be so much better with you. We want you out there. The easy call was to pass on a summer of schoolwork and forget about football. Get a job, fish, ride his dirt bike. He wasn't going to college, so what was the point? But he had played football in the same town with these same teammates since he was eight years old. He loved the feeling of Friday nights, of taking the field with his friends and getting a clean hit and feeling the air leave the other guy's lungs. Benbow and assistant coach Clint Dewey, Fortuna's high school principal, are sitting in Dewey's office, taking a moment to consider what football did for Foley. They exchange a look that contains all ten years they've coached together. Benbow, the more diplomatic of the two, starts to talk about grades and eligibility. Dewey cuts him off. Football kept him in school. Dewey says, bottom line. It's common for Fortuna's players to be the third or even fourth generation to wear husky blue, and Midnight Madness is the kind of event that brings them all back. On the first day in pads, at the stroke of midnight, the Huskies take the field for a controlled scrimmage. Fans are charged $5 to watch. After sundown before the first practice last August, Bailey knocked on the door of Benbow's office. Bailey, what are you doing here? He answered by handing his coach a piece of paper, signed by an administrator just the day before, showing that he'd completed ten summer school units and was now eligible to play his senior year. I'm playing football, Bailey said. The ambulance arrived. Bailey's jersey and shoulder pads were cut off his body. Through it all, Bailey kept seizing. His teammates looked away. Star running back J.B. Lewis started praying for his friend to stop, to please to stop. He called his teammates together and led a quiet prayer. Dr. Gary Lacander, a pulmonary and critical care specialist who is among a group of doctors who volunteer at Cardinal Newman during games, was one of the first to reach Bailey. He knelt over his twisting body and attempted to keep his airway clear. There wasn't much more we could do, Lacander says. I'll just never forget how quiet it was. Higgins watched, crying and thinking, could my best friend really be dying right now? The rational and irrational blurred. Is this my fault? What if I didn't push him to take summer school? Bailey was lifted onto a gurney and rolled into the ambulance as Benbow got into the passenger seat. He was still seizing when they closed the doors. He was still seizing when Benbow called his wife, Tracy, back in Fortuna, and told her he wouldn't be coming home. He was still seizing when they got to the hospital, a twelve-minute drive. Two hundred miles away, Tara Johnson sat in her kitchen in Fortuna and streamed the game on the local radio station. She inched closer to the speaker when the announcer said the game was halted so medical personnel could tend to her son. The broadcast got so quiet, it sounded as if it were coming from a studio and not a high school stadium. Tara began to rationalize. The high in Santa Rosa was 87 degrees that day, and even after sundown it was hotter than the boys in Humboldt County were accustomed to. Probably just heat exhaustion, Tara thought.
When the announcer told her, because by that point she felt like he was speaking only to her, that the ambulance had arrived and the game was over, she promoted her son's illness to heat stroke. He'll get hydrated at the hospital and be fine. She was already arranging a ride when Benbo, the crack in his voice betraying his attempts at composure, called and said she needed to get to the hospital. Bailey's 19-year-old cousin, Max Leroy, showed up at the door and said he would drive Tara and Bailey's father, Sage Foley, the 200 miles from their home to the hospital. They talked about how it was probably no big deal. Bailey's a tough kid, Leroy kept saying. Until an hour down the road, Leroy got a text from one of Bailey's friends. It's not going to be okay. A few minutes later, a neurosurgeon called Tara to ask permission to remove half of her son's skull to relieve the pressure caused by an intracranial bleed. From that point on, Leroy says, I'm not sure we said another word the rest of the trip. Tubes were placed in Bailey's brain to drain the accumulated blood, and the removed piece of skull was preserved in a freezer. Back at the field, Dewey, the assistant coach, stood in front of the team in the locker room. He looked out at the stricken faces and listened to the sobbing and thought, they may have just watched a teammate die. He was terrified, but he was the adult who had to find a way to say something, anything that made sense. He had no idea how. He took a deep breath and said, it's okay to hurt right now. I know you're all scared, so you need to go hug your families and be with your families and just be there for each other. When we know more, we'll let you know. Dewey was fully aware of his talk's futility as soon as his words hit air. Nobody knew anything, Dewey says. I think we all left there thinking Bailey was going to pass away. Benbow is convinced that football creates better, stronger people. This is the central verse of his faith. Kids like Bailey present a conundrum. They're the biggest challenge and the biggest reward. Something shifted in their relationship the night Bailey showed up with the summer school transcript. He worked his ass off. And he did it all on his own, Benbo says. I was proud of him. After three weeks of inspired practice, Bailey had earned Benbo's highest honorific, one reserved for the handful who can be relied upon no matter the circumstances. Dude. In the surgery waiting room, the stunned silence hung in the air like a physical presence. Tara and Sage arrived at the hospital and stepped out of an elevator at the same time their son was being wheeled toward the ICU after surgery. At first, they didn't recognize him. Eyes closed, black hair covered in bandages, tubes everywhere. Nobody slept. Benbo, his whole body like an exposed nerve, left the hospital after daybreak and drove the three and a half hours back to Fortuna in a school van. Benbo called Dewey as he drove away from the hospital. I feel good about him being alive, Benbo said. I just don't know what that means. The conversation came around to the question they'd been asking themselves since the ambulance left the field. How can we keep doing this? We talked seriously about whether we wanted to move forward and continue to do this, Benbo says, and how to address it, Dewey adds. How to move forward with them, whether we even should. We spent hours, we talked for weeks. It would be ignorant to suggest football had nothing to do with what happened to Bailey, but it's equally true that no obvious event could have either foretold it or prevented it. For Benbo, it was an endless back and forth. One minute he was telling himself the game didn't cause it, that a healthy 17-year-old boy could fall off the curb and get hit by a car. The next minute he was wrestling with the harsh reality. It happened during a game. No one could tell for sure when the veins burst and the bleeding in Bailey's brain began, or when he became conscious of the growing pain under his skull. 
A neurosurgeon can connect certain dots. Traumatic brain injury that caused a subdural hematoma that caused a stroke was the diagnosis. But it's impossible for a neurosurgeon to look at the blood pooling in an exposed brain on an operating table and say the damage was caused by a collision with a pulling guard with four minutes left in the third quarter. At Cardinal Newman, Paul Cronin and his assistant coaches stayed long past midnight, poring over the film in a fruitless search for something that made sense. There was self-interest for their team involved. If there was a definitive hit, Cronin wanted to take it off the team's online library. The worst thing is to be Bailey in that hospital, he says. The next worst thing is to be the one who caused it. The ripples spread. The next morning, Cronin got up early to drive his eight-year-old son to his youth game. What a rough drive, he says. I mean, it's eight-year-old football, so it's basically bumper cars. But I'm driving to that game with my son next to me, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? That morning in Fortuna, football captain J.B. Lewis called a team meeting. Benbow let the players have the floor. They talked about loss and confusion and fear. They couldn't understand how this happened to Bailey. It didn't make sense, Higgins says. They always say, be the hammer instead of the nail, and Bailey was always the hammer. Higgins said he was sure Bailey would want them to continue playing. Lewis said they could turn this into a positive to play for a higher purpose. Toward the end of the meeting, they decided that anybody could walk away without repercussions. They vowed never to use the word quit. Only one player decided to stop playing. Lewis delivered a final message. If we're going to play for Bailey, then we're going to play like Bailey. Within days, Bailey's number 20 jersey had been stitched together and mounted on plywood. And a week after the injury, Higgins carried it at the front of the line when the Huskies entered the stadium for pregame warm-ups. He carried it onto the field for the coin toss and sat it next to Bailey's helmet on the sideline and then held it aloft as he walked off the field. Benbow saw that jersey as he walked onto the field beside his players, and he caught random glimpses of it when he turned around on the sidelines to talk to his coaches, and every time it forced him to reckon with his conflicting thoughts. The jersey had a presence. It cautioned as it inspired, and its influence arrived in unexpected ways. Benbow, as if subconsciously rubbing a scar, hammered home the importance of being honest about injuries. No complaint, no matter how minor, was dismissed. Hard hits were followed by a wincing silence, rather than the usual howls. Benbow made sure Bailey was his team's last thought before taking the field and the first upon leaving it. They prayed for him before and after every game. Bailey remained in a medically induced coma for more than three weeks. He was transferred from Santa Rosa to the Children's Hospital in Oakland on September 25th, exactly one month after the injury. In Oakland, Tara slept on a cushioned window seat in Bailey's room. Sage slept where he could, in the hospital's family room, across two chairs in the waiting room, even in the passenger seat of Bailey's Hyundai Tiburon that sat in the parking garage. Weeks became months. Tara and Sage returned to Fortuna just once, for one night. It took Bailey six weeks to say his first words, and they proved to be an endless source of amusement. I'm drying meat, he said. When Tara repeated the words back to him questioningly, he replied, Yeah, to sell. Tara kept a journal for Bailey, documenting the days he would never remember. On November 12th, Bailey's 80th day in the hospital, she wrote, Slept in until 10 o'clock. Got up and used Walker to go to the bathroom. Watched football. Took a shower. Watched more football. 
used Walker again, got weight, 143 pounds, watched more football, played Lumosity. Bailey and Sage would watch every possible football game from Thursday night through Monday night. Every Friday, Tara would post a photo on Facebook of Bailey holding up a sign that read, Go Huskies. The student body voted Bailey homecoming king, and the mounted jersey rode through town in the parade and took the field at halftime with Haley Benbow, the homecoming queen. Through it all, the Huskies kept playing for Bailey and like Bailey. They entered the playoffs seated fourth in their division, but upsets on the other side of the bracket brought them a few extra home games. Teams from the Bay Area not only had to make the drive to the Lost Coast, but also had to play on Fortuna's muddy grass field, so saturated by late fall that it practically oozed. The Huskies accomplished mutters, won playoff games 61-0 and 60-6. They won the section championship 44-0. They won a Northern California Bowl game to earn a spot in the CIF State Division 5A championship game. All of the stuff we'd been through, Higgins says, we just piled it into that jersey. The state championship game was in Anaheim, an 11-and-a-half-hour drive from Fortuna, and the Huskies stopped in Oakland to visit Bailey. Benbow presented medals for the North Coast section in the NorCal Division 5A championships and promised him one more. Many of Bailey's teammates hadn't seen him since the ambulance doors closed. They couldn't see the steady, incremental improvement that sustained Tara and Sage. They were stunned. He had lost nearly thirty pounds. His voice was weak. He was hunched in a wheelchair, his eyes unfocused. It was unclear whether he recognized them. Some players hid their faces so Bailey couldn't see them cry. When it was time to leave, J.B. Lewis leaned down to hug his friend. I love you, Bailey, he said. Lewis immediately wondered, did that sound weird? It didn't to him. Since Bailey's injury, Lewis and his teammates had spent hours in the locker room and the parking lot and on the field discussing topics traditionally forbidden. Gratitude, mortality, and yes, even love. And now Lewis wondered whether Bailey, one of the toughest kids they knew, would sense weakness or even condescension in those three words. Bailey took a breath to summon the volume to be heard. I love you too, JB, he said. The next night, Sage connected a laptop to the television in Bailey's room to stream the game between Fortuna and Catella of Anaheim. Bailey got to see Ethan carry his jersey to midfield for the coin toss and hear the announcers recount days and weeks and months he can't remember. He watched as the Huskies, with Benbow in the middle, broke the team huddle before kickoff the way they had since the second game of the season, yelling, Bailey, and taking the field. In another improbable twist, Lewis, playing with a broken left finger that needed surgery over the summer, moved to quarterback at halftime after Fortuna's starter left with an injury. He helped lead an offense that outscored Catella 26-6 in the second half of a 54-33 win. When it was over, Benbo walked off the field and fought the churn of emotion. Something terrible happened, he kept thinking as he watched his team celebrate, but something wonderful came out of it. So many inexplicable events conspired to make Benbow wonder who or what was dictating it all. None of this seems real, even now, he says. His team embodied the qualities that form the basis of his faith in high school football. The players fought their fears and their sadness and broke through the traditional structure of teenage masculinity to bring their little town something it could never imagine. Yet that jersey was still mounted on that piece of plywood, 
and that boy was still propped up in a hospital bed, with no recollection of anything that happened in the four months after his brain began to bleed and his body began to seize. It's remarkable how closely Bailey's recovery paralleled the Huskies' run through the playoffs. He was discharged from the hospital a few days after Christmas, 13 days after the Huskies won their first state title, and returned to school on April 3rd, about the same time the Huskies' championship rings were delivered. Benbow presented Bailey with his ring, gave him a hug, and said, You were a big part of this. Bailey rolled the ring around on his finger and looked up at his coach. I'm never going to take this off, he said. By then, there was no chance Bailey could make up the schoolwork he'd missed, but Tara didn't want Bailey to be handed a diploma out of pity. Dewey worked with the district to approve a modified curriculum to be completed outside the classroom, which left one important task, finding a teacher willing to tutor Bailey at his home three days a week until graduation. Dewey and Benbow are sitting in Dewey's office when I ask them how they chose that teacher. They look at each other as if debating with their eyes. Do you want to tell him or should I? Dewey pauses for effect and nods toward Benbow, the man who always pushed Bailey and sometimes angered him and ultimately learned more from him than he could ever teach. I made the call, Dewey says. I knew there was not going to be a teacher on campus who cared more about Bailey's well-being. On a cloudy Wednesday afternoon, two weeks before graduation, Bailey and Benbow are at the kitchen table in the little house one block off the main drag. Tara joins them as Benbow patiently helps Bailey read through an outdated chart on the gross domestic product of South American nations. Eight months of watching her son's progress has calibrated her mind to detect the granular elements of his recovery. How his fingers grasp and re-grasp the pencil. How his attention waxes and wanes. How his weakened right eye follows the words across the page through a special magnifier on the lens of his glasses. She watches closely as Benbow moves on to charts documenting the rates of infant mortality in various undeveloped countries and the number of TV sets per 1,000 people and per capita health spending as it relates to gross national product. How does the population of Nepal compare to the population of Australia? Benbow asks. Bailey tries to find the right column, his finger moving slowly across the page. This row is gross domestic product, Benbow says, directing Bailey's finger to the right column. And this row is population. So we're looking at this row. So how does the population of Nepal, which is 23 million, Bailey says. Good. How does that compare to Australia, up on top? It's kind of close. Yeah, write that down. What do I write? Write, it's kind of close. Exactly what you said. Bailey picks up the pencil in his right hand and begins to write the answer on the line under the question. The tip travels across the page slowly and carefully. Close to an hour passes like this. There are four or five questions on each page. They finish three pages. This is all you've got right here, brother, Benbow says, holding up the remaining unfinished pages. Five pages and you're done. Five pages and you're a high school graduate. Benbow reaches out a fist for Bailey to bump. Good job, brother, Benbow says. Nice work today. You pumped? Yeah, I can't wait to get out of school. Benbow laughs and says, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not that bad, is it? I think it is. Benbow bundles the papers and tells Bailey that he'll see him tomorrow, and that by the end of the day, he'll be a ceremony away from being a high school graduate. Tara, quiet to this point, congratulates her son and thanks his coach as he leaves through the garage and walks down the driveway. 
The cab of Benbow's truck is quiet as we drive the mile back to the school. He sees the progress Bailey has made, the way the young man's kindling dry wit occasionally reemerges, quietly, unexpectedly, like a mouse from a hole. The week before, Bailey came into Benbow's classroom and they spoke for almost ten minutes about their favorite fishing spots. It was as close to normal as it's been, Benbow says. Three afternoons a week, he sits at that little table and finds hope in the smallest victories, a quicker response to a question, a smoother curve on the lowercase g, a sharper edge to a cutting remark. And three afternoons a week, he walks away from that little table and feels the promise of the present yield to sadness and uncertainty. It's been really good for me to be with him, he says. There's some guilt. I think that's probably natural. Whenever I see him, I wonder if there was something that could have been done, something I didn't see. I don't control what happens completely, but it's hard because when they're under my care, they're my boys. Over and over, the game film reveals no cause, and therefore no blame, yet the guilt weighs heavily on Benbo, and Higgins, and Sage Foley. What if the friend didn't persuade Bailey to complete the summer credits? What if the dad didn't instill a love of football in his son? Benbo drives on. In many ways, it's the best time of his life. He will forever be a legend in his hometown for winning his alma mater's first state championship. His son Blake is home for the summer from Boise State. His daughter is spending the summer preparing for her freshman year at Harvard. He can walk out of Bailey's life and back into his own. I just want him to be a normal kid, he says. But when I leave, I start thinking about the future. I can't shake the thought, oh my goodness, what is life going to look like for him? And it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. Graduation day breaks cloudless and sparkling, the breeze sweeping in from the Pacific like an old friend. Bailey lies on the couch next to his father. He's been awake since before 7 a.m. A college baseball game plays idly on the television. The days and months ahead will be filled with physical therapy and occupational therapy and the vision therapy treatments that are a three-hour drive away. He's working for the day when he can regain his driver's license and climb back onto one of his two-stroke dirt bikes. His friends will scatter. Higgins will attend Arizona, and his eyes water and his voice breaks just thinking about it. I'm going off to start my life, he says. How am I going to say goodbye to him? But none of that matters today. Before long, the house will be filled with family members, and one of Bailey's friends will swing by to pick him up and take him to the school. As Tara massages his feet, Bailey turns to his father and says, in a voice barely above a whisper, I can't believe I'm graduating. Yeah, dude, Sage says. He laughs and reaches over to grab his son's shoulder. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? It's an innocent question, something Sage's father probably asked him the day he graduated from Fortuna High. But Bailey unsmiling looks at his dad and for a long moment they stay like this sage's right hand on his son's shoulder the silence filling the room bailey's dark brown eyes fix on his father's pleading waiting an answer of their own a few hours later with the majestic redwoods to the east of the fortuna football field covering the mountains like green shag carpet the stands are packed as is every overflow chair Blankets and strollers and wheelchairs cover the section of the field that aren't roped off for the graduates. The clothing is a mixture of cowboy hats and suspenders, tie-dye shirts and hemp pants. One of the girls has inscribed her graduation cap with Save the Bees. An elderly woman wears a t-shirt bearing a handgun and the words Come and Take It. 
Bailey sits and listens to the talk of college and futures and where the class of 18 will disperse to pursue their dreams. Speakers recount all the silly moments he either didn't experience or can't remember. The bad lip-syncing that's apparently epidemic in Fortuna. The epic impatience of a certain teacher. And who can forget the time Zack baptized himself in the ocean during senior sunrise? What were the odds, the moment those ambulance doors closed, of Bailey Foley sitting in an aisle seat two rows from the back, wearing a cap and gown? The valedictorian ends her speech by telling the crowd, You don't peak in high school, no matter what you're told. And as the diploma roll call passes through the D's and E's, the announcer abruptly stops reading. The Fortuna High School class of 2018, many wiping away tears, stands and begins cheering as a slacks-wearing Benbow walks past the rows of chairs and stops to help Bailey to his feet. The coach smiles and asks him whether he's ready, and Bailey nods. By now, the entire crowd understands the enormity of the moment. This boy, the one they had read about and prayed for and donated money to, is not only here, but somehow walking across the stage to graduate with his classmates. They stand and cheer and wipe away their tears. In the stands, one of Bailey's cousins tries to send the moment out live, but stops when her sobs make it impossible to steady her phone. As Bailey and Benbow reach the base of the stairs, the announcer attempts to say the words, Bailey, Jamin, Foley, loudly enough to rise above the roar, but it's pointless. Benbow lets go of Bailey's elbow and walks ahead. Bailey climbs the stairs alone, slowly, but with determination, his body listing a bit to the left. It's strict protocol for the superintendent to hand out the diplomas in Fortuna Union High School District, but exceptions can be made in extraordinary circumstances. And so, when Bailey Foley, outwardly oblivious to the ovation, stops on the X at the center of the graduation platform, he looks up to see Benbow emerging from the other side, smiling but fighting back tears, holding a diploma in his outstretched hand. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Tim Kuhn. Tim, thank you so much for making the time. Hey, thanks for having me. So this story is fantastic. and But the thing that I got out of so much of so many of the characters involved that weren't Bailey, it felt like overwhelming guilt. Is that something in your evolution with this group that as you were able to speak to them over time, that did you feel that as well? I did. You know what? What I felt was was confusion and guilt, and and sort of all the the normal courses of emotion that people go through after after tragedies, and and wondering what they could have done to prevent it, and and whether they could have seen something. And I and I think that the the really interesting thing about this particular incident was that the ripples that it created. It wasn't just one person saying, like the coach Mike Benbow saying. Uh, you know, I, I I should have seen something, or maybe I should have seen something. But it was like his best friend who who convinced him to go to summer school and and get the credits that would be needed for him to be eligible to play football. Right. Uh, it was his dad who who just started him in Pop Warner when he was eight years old. I mean, there was this whole this sort of reconsideration of of his particular circumstance that I think kind of in a way, if I'm not trying to, to make it too profound, but I think it kind of, 
exemplifies this grand reconsideration we have for football in general. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that we're, we're sort of rethinking this whole thing that we have pretty much just enjoyed our whole lives and, and haven't really looked into the, the repercussions until, you know, just the last decade. Now, not to be like devil's, a little devil's advocate, I guess, on the other side is, as you point out, like during this operation, like a neurologist can see what has happened, but not necessarily how or what happened. Has there been ever anything that indicated that maybe Bailey was prone to something like this? Or, I mean, I mean, after all, this was a kid who loved to ride dirt bikes and got in a few fights and played like threw his body around. Was there something that they ever indicated like, well, yes, that contributed to it? Or was it just the overwhelming feeling that if he doesn't play in that game, nothing happens to him? There was never any any sort of diagnosis that was that you could point to, such as say a, an AV malformation in the brain that would mm-hmm. have triggered this. Um, so there wasn't anything that was there uh, that was that was visible. You know, it was it was something that they think it was uh, was traumatic brain injury that caused a stroke, mm-hmm. um, and they have no way. Just like if you know if if somebody takes a massive hit and, and this, they have a bleed on the brain. It's the same thing, except mm-hmm. that they just can't find the cause. They can't find that event. And that's part of what is so, um, you know, both compelling and heartbreaking about this story is that everybody's still searching for it. You know, the coach, he's still watching the tape and he's right. still trying to find something. And uh, I think that's, that's the thing about this is that we don't always know, you know, there's not always, uh, it could have happened a week before it could have happened the day before it could have happened in that game, but they're just, it isn't always a massive visible event that causes something like this. Now, coach Mike Bembo, uh, also the, um, the history teacher who I'm sure is fully immersed in the edict of history of those who are, do not learn from their mistakes of the past are condemned to repeat them. Like is, is not finding like the cause and effect. Is that his real fear that this could happen again? I think so. And I think that there's part of it in, in a weird way that, that is because they can't find it. It's sort of like put it up to the gods, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like just like we can't, it's just, it's beyond our comprehension. Something happened, um, you know, in, in his better moments, I think that's where he is. I think in his in his worst moments, he's still he's still thinking that because Bailey was under his care at that moment, that he should have been able to see something. And I think that that another compelling part of this story is just how how tied Mike Benbow is to his players and how how much this really did affect him. Um, it's harder for him to just say, "Oh well, you know, we, right. we coach a game that that is violent, and sometimes things happen." Um, that's the, that's the, uh, the interesting thing. And also, you know, Bailey of all people is sort of the one that is most like that. He's the one that's like, Hey, you play football. Sometimes you get hurt mm-hmm. and he's still watching football. He still loves football. And that, that part is, that part is really, really sort of tough to, to watch in a way. I mean, because it's something that, that, uh, that it makes it easier for the people around him, but it also is, is sort of. Um, when you're looking at the effects of what happened to him in a football game, it's, it's, it's difficult to hear that. Sure. I mean, then you also have, you know, the part where, uh, coach Bembo says to you, like, if they could look at it and says, there it is. And now we know, 
and that would have, and he says, I, I guess that would have been easier, but I don't, that would have been easier, but I don't know. And it just seems with the way he approaches the game and breaks down things to teach them a problem without an origin is not a lesson learned. And therefore like that's sort of what seemed to be frightening to anybody that's like to your point of the whole last 10 years of rethinking football. Exactly. And and I think that, that, you know, that's the great debate in his mind is would it be better if I knew, but if I knew then I should have done something about it. Or if it was something I could have seen, then it would have been something I could have prevented. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this endless, vicious circle of, of regret and blame and, and reconsideration that he's going True. through that, that is, is, um, you know, it's really at the heart of the, the conflict in this story. So it's like trading one guilt for another is basically the only solution that he could ever come to. Exactly. And the, the guilt that he would that would come about from knowing what happened and being able to see it and prevent it next time is is positive because of that reason you could mm-hmm. prevent it next time but it would also be more difficult on him because it would be why didn't I prevent it this time correct right exactly now his friend Ethan Higgins seems to as you mentioned the one who encouraged him to take the classes to be eligible to play it's um yes it seems that uh to your point of Bailey Foley being a well, sometimes you get hurt when he says, here I am about to start my life and Bailey has his, are they sort of, I got a little bit of the feeling that maybe they're underestimating what Bailey Foley might define as happiness now is basically he sort of, it seems that he being who he was and getting back to just maybe that physical level or close to it at some point would be more than enough to him than being what some people thought he could be or wanted to be where meaning that some of the guilt that someone like Ethan Higgins has about going on to university of Arizona is a little bit like his friend Bailey is more like, dude, don't worry about that. Like I know what I was doing. Right. And I think there is, there is that, uh, there's that with the coach as well. Like I'm going on, we're coaching and we win a state championship of all things from this little town in Northern California. And, I think that what they what they're kind of grappling with is what what they remember of Bailey mm-hmm. versus what they're seeing now. Right. Um, and he's you know he is different. He's he's got a long way to go. And he's he the fact that he came through this in a way for Bailey for his family is is a miracle in itself. Mm-hmm. And and whether that's enough, I don't know. But they they felt they were going to lose him. I mean, a lot of people did, and so. You're right. There is there is a um, there, there's there's a they're grappling with what they see now versus what they expected. Whereas the family has a more realistic. The family was with him every single day, so mm-hmm. they're looking at how far he's come and not how far he has to go. And it does seem that while this brought the community together, to your point just now, is but is Bailey's family? I mean, I mean, you you find in life, you know when your life is fantastic and your friends are around you are fantastic, it's probably because of that exact reason, but you really get the test when either you or someone close to you gets really sick or suffers some sort of an injury. And it seems that, uh, and that's, some people can't handle it, but it seems that Bailey's family got closer than you could, you would ever see in some of these situations. Definitely. And I think that was something that, that really, came through was just the way they put their lives on hold, both his parents to, 
to be with him. And, and it, and it wasn't easy for them. I mean, they, they aren't, they aren't wealthy people and they, they don't have particularly easy lives. They work hard and they, and they, they gave up a lot to do this. And it's uh, their strength. It was really, really something that I was, that I really admired through this reporting. This story it was the way that they were, they were able to come together and, and for him and, and really put, put him at the center of their lives. And, you know, a lot of it was, was really kind of deep, you know, the way the mom would write, keep a journal and and address it to Bailey. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, was something because it was, she was sort of consciously or not, she was writing letters to this person who she knew wasn't going to remember any of this. And she was sort of chronicling his time to him. Um, and, And that, that's the kind of thing that sort of, that, that, sort of an intuitive depth that came out of this for people that probably hadn't, you know, how many of us are really that self-aware about things until we're faced with some tragedy like this. And I think that that was um, just as a, as a, as a look at the human condition, that really was something that, that, uh, that struck, that struck me as very, as very deep and very poignant. Now, in your opinion, from what you were able to witness uh, with the way that team was, is there any question that they win the state title if Bailey doesn't get hurt? I, I you know, it's funny how we deal with sports, isn't it? We 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 bundle up these these kinds of things and package them and put them out on the field and and then attribute the success to that. And I I really do think in this case that it really kept these guys going. Yeah. You know, um, you know the 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 way these kids spoke, they just belied their age so many different times. I mean, I, I was going through my, my notes and I was thinking I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't make up quotes like this. These mm-hmm. kids were so, they were so smart and they had given so much thought to this in a time when they normally wouldn't, if they mm-hmm. hadn't been faced with this, they wouldn't have been thinking of these things. And, you know, they have a team meeting the next day after, after he gets hurt and, and they, the the team captain, this kid JB Lewis, stands up at the end when they decide that they're going to keep playing and they're not going to give up their season. And, and that, and he says, if we're going to if we're going to play for Bailey, we got to play like Bailey. Right. And playing like Bailey meant just putting everything into it, just like basically just completely playing as hard as you can all the time. And and basically the consequences be damned is, is the way it, it came across. And I just, you know, I'm just thinking that is such a, that's, that's like a movie script. I mean, it's like fiction that, that, that these kids, they, they found this strength within them that, that was a lot in a lot of ways it was propelled by what happened in that first game. And as the coach said, when he gave Bailey his state championship ring, he said, you were a big part of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he played in one game that they lost, right. You know, he was constantly part of it. He was, he was part of every practice and it, and it changed the way they, they played and it changed the way they practiced and it changed the way they dealt with each other. Um, yeah, it was, it, it, it was something that once I got deep into this, I, I was really, um, I was really struck by how many different levels of it there were. It was, yeah, it was pretty powerful how they would break their huddles by yelling, not like break, but yell or team, but Bailey. Yes. And, but, but to your point though, the reckless, like the consequences be damned, like, you know, play like for Bailey. Like if you had the t-shirt that they had, if they had made a t-shirt, it would say for Bailey, like Bailey. But that was the part that kind of, 
you know, as this, as you set it up before that when the coach talked about like, Hey, listen, like Bailey wasn't really much for assignment football, but when I told him just to wreak havoc and break up plays and throw your body around, like he did it and did it and did it and did it. But, and also the part about, we don't know exactly what happened, but you're, you know, you're ignorant, as you pointed out, you're ignorant to think that football didn't have something to do with this. But that's what I found right. to be so, like, it kind of blew me away that playing like Bailey is basically putting your life in the hands of the game and just hoping that you don't have the same thing happen to you. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing, right? I mean, that's the conflict. That's the That's the game. I mean, the game is that you can't, you can't, how many times have you heard people say you can't go out playing scared? You know, mm-hmm. you can't go halfway because that's when you're going to get hurt. Right. Um, and coaches love guys like Bailey, right? I mean, they love the kids that are, are just going to do whatever they can to help the team and use their talents to the best of their abilities. And, and, and yeah, that's the push in the pool of football is that how do you play it without that? Right. And, as one of the coaches told me, like we, this is the, you know, this is sort of the, the, the problem and you know, it's sort of the curse and the, the, the great thing about this game is that they, they reach kids through a game that's based on violence. Right. You know, you are reaching kids. These kids, they will be forever changed by this season. Mm-hmm. But the violence, you can't take the violence out of it. And yeah. football coaches, you know, we can debate this all we want, but they don't believe that any other sport does this they feel like there's a special place in the culture for football and it's it's really difficult to do to look at what happened to bailey fully and not say okay what's the collateral damage and what is this worth it and you had yeah and you and you even mentioned how coach benbo has that sign in his classroom hit or be hit i mean there's there's no there's no dancing around what that means but but how um how important was it to the boys uh, when they were heading down for the title game and they visited Bailey? How in, how important did you gather from them? It was when when the captain, J.B. Lewis, leaned in and said, hey, I love you. But Bailey leaned back and said, I love you too, J.B. I mean, while it was, yeah, it, took, was... It, it took some effort, sure. But, I mean, he said it. He knew what was being said to him. I think, I mean, did that like erase a lot of and empower a lot of the kids? I think so. And I, I think that, you know, that that's, uh, you know, that would be quite a scene in the movie, I think. But, you know, it's just these things that happened along the way. The win one for the Gipper and, line. Uh, exactly. Um, I, you know, and, and at first they were and for most of that that visit, they were struck by how poor he looked and how mm-hmm. they felt they expected a better a better Bailey than what they got. So there was a lot of a lot of silence. And again, the family was like, look at Bailey, look how far he's come. And these yeah. kids who hadn't seen him were like, Oh my gosh, look at Bailey. Yes. And I think that, that, um, yeah, the fact that he, he, he responded that way and that he responded as, as I write in the piece, you know, this is, a, this is one of the toughest kids any of them had ever met. So mm-hmm. these kids who outside of Bailey had been having these conversations about loss and mortality and, the future and all these vulnerability things that 18 year old boys almost never talk about. So he was like, JB was kind of laying himself bare to Bailey for the whole team with this, this simple, I love you because that's not something that boys that age generally say to each other. Right. And so 
to hear it back was something that I think they, they all were, you know, from a, I don't know if it was validation, like, Hey, we're on the right path here. Like, okay, like he gets it too, but it just felt that way. And I think that it, it made them, although they were very sad and very quiet when they left that hospital, I think that, that eventually that visit sort of seeing him in the moment and then playing the next night. I mean, a lot of them said that really, that really carried them, that, that, that meant a lot to them. Now, uh, the principal and the assistant coach, Clint Dewey, is with how he's been able to, you know, in your interactions and how he, you know, spoke on behalf of or with Coach Benbo, like together, is he the one, like the rock keeping Coach Benbo together? Or is it more like a symbiotic relationship where, like, they feed off each other? Yeah, I think it's symbiotic. And I think that Dewey, in my estimation, has the, uh, maybe the, I don't want to say a rougher edge, but he's more blunt about mm-hmm. things. And he was more, uh, he, he would say the things that, that Benbo would, would be a little bit more, uh, <laughs> he would dance around a little bit more. Uh-huh. And I, and I think that that the, the combination of those two personalities, I think they help each other. You know, I think Benbo probably has an impact on, on Dewey in terms of looking at things from all angles and Dewey has, sort of this, the, the, the role of saying we couldn't do anything about this. It's, it's, you know, it's something that happened. It could have happened to anyone. It's terrible that it happened. We feel awful about it, but there's a limit to how much we can blame ourselves. Right. And so I think there is a symbiotic thing that they've been friends forever. They've coached together for 10 years. They both come from that community. Um, so it's, it, it was that, that connection that they have both, to each other and to Fortuna mm-hmm. was, was a very, you know, very important part of, of their relationship and getting through this. Do they, do those, um, does uh, coach Bembo and do they still watch the film? Do you know? Well, I, I sat down with him. I asked him if we could watch it because he had, it had clearly been such a big part of his, uh, I don't know if you call it healing, but his, his process. Mm-hmm. And so, so we did sit, together and watch it. And, and I kind of start the piece with that. And, and right. I think that, I think that, um, I think that he probably hadn't watched it for, for a while, maybe, you know, a, a couple months or so, but, but he says that he, he occasionally does go back and, and look at it. But I think that he had sort of reached, I, I kind of got the, it was almost like he was reading from the script when we were talking because he yeah. had seen it so many times right. and he knew every play so intimately that I think he was, I, I think he's sort of, gotten to the point where it may not be productive anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, I know it was like you mentioned that, like what's the point of certain things like before Bailey got hurt, like, Hey, I'm not going to college. But once he got those summer school credits, like was, was that something that maybe they were thinking about or, or was he headed towards like a similar path that he had be regardless of whether he was eligible for football? Yeah. I don't think that, that, that college was going to be in his plans. I mean, that that's another aspect of this story that is interesting is that this wasn't, you know, he wasn't the, uh, the 4.5 student on his way to Harvard, like Benbo's daughter, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there were, there's some, some different aspects of, of Bailey's personality that weren't, that you couldn't really sugarcoat. He was a tough kid. He came in from a tough place. He was, you know, he, he'd fight, he'd, 
you know, he'd get in trouble and skip school and he didn't get good grades, you know, all these things that they were all very open about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think that was going to change. I don't think that, I I don't know that, that he was on, on any path to, to college um, really either way. So as far, as far as he's come, what is, uh, what is the future now for Bailey Foley? Well, it's difficult to say because I mean, the, 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 he's come so far, you know, he has, he, if he continues to progress to the degree that he has in the last, well, the last eight months, then, then there's no telling. I mean, he can be, he, he, he can, he can be back to some semblance of what he was before, both physically and and mentally. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he seems sharp, you know, mentally he, he's just a little bit slow, you know, I mean, he's still recovering. He was, right. Uh, you know, he was in a coma for a long time. His brain sort of has to regenerate. Um, but his recovery is, I mean, on the scale of, of where people who come from this kind of injury, where they get to. I mean, he's he's beaten so many odds to this point that that his family and the people around him are very hopeful that that that'll continue and that he'll be able to be, you know, live independently and, and get a job. And he wants to get his driver's license and go back to riding his dirt bikes and fishing <laughs> down at the river. And all this, of course, happening around Fortuna, which of course is Italian for luck. Yes. <laughs> so, well, uh, yeah, we'll definitely keep following the story. We hope his uh, progress continues, but Tim, thank you for so much for making the time today. Hey, no problem, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.